Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And welcome to episode 215 of Geek Time Radio. And back this week with Ross. Hi, Dave. How's it going? I was a little bit early on the button there. <laughs> That's fine. I was thinking, wait, it's you saying it and it's your button. So how does that get mixed up? <laughs> yeah, it's because that update thing propped up on the on the soundboard at the same time. And I was kind of trying to click that out of the way. Anyway. <laughs> All good. No, you haven't been on yeah, for a while. Yeah. You've been like no, away been... every time we've oh, kind of arranged well, things. So. This uh, life of a young person, Dave, I have to get about and, you know. Yeah, see. yeah. And plus it's summer, you know. Not not sure. that you would notice the last week, but yes. <laughs> yeah. So what have you been up to then? Yes, weird weather's perfect time to stay indoors. Uh, yeah. First of all, I want to talk to you about something that I think is a little old now, The Tick. You remember The Tick? Yes, yeah, two seasons um, and gone, unfortunately, but yes. That's right, a real shame. So um, I watched, I think I watched one episode when it came out, which I, must be, what, 2018 now? Well, the, yeah, I mean, it was when they, they released that ages and ages ago because that first episode came out even before the series was released. Ah, we so. did wonder because in the second episode, he the first time you see the tick, um, his friend Arthur looks at him and goes, you look really different. What's changed? And of yeah. course it would be because there's a big time gap between the... Yeah, because Amazon used to do those premiere things and then put it out to the public to sort of vote on what they liked and what they didn't. And they've stopped doing that now, but it was one of those shows. And, right. Uh, well, it's, it's a shame it's gone because I like the tick. I think it was... Yeah. Uh, Terrific. I think it's one of the finest superhero programs I've watched. If, if maybe one of the finest superhero anythings, because <laughs> it's really, it's just really, it's really cleverly done, yeah. and uh, it makes fun of a lot of tropes. And Peter Serafini, which is terrific, uh, just the whole thing is really well put together. My partner is very quick to point out explosions or people falling off stuff, and it looks really crap. In like you know when it looks <laughs> crap sometimes, yeah. she loves to point that out. And we put it out in this, and we're like, ah, oh, that looks crap, but that's good. That's yeah, probably fine. Kind of the aesthetic doesn't it really yeah but we really like that so yeah if you haven't watched the tick it's only two seasons like you say there's not going to be any more 22 episodes and they're all terrific it, i think it's half an hour like sitcom length as well so you yeah, know yeah, to find one to uh binge watch while you cook there is it? the original cartoon series as well that you can go wow. and find if you uh, want to look that up because there is a cartoon series which is what the tick is based on as well so very interesting yeah so uh other stuff i've got a couple of bbc bits here um we started watching the Advantage of Ramesh Ranganathan, yes. which is a show about uh, Ramesh goes, he's a comedian, if you don't know, a stand-up comedian, and he goes to places that people perhaps don't go on holidays. Yes. Uh, places like, I think he 
he's been to Tibet in this series and part of Africa, um, parts of Russia that people don't tend to go. And uh, yeah, and it's about tourism in these places. And uh, it's really interesting. There's some really good stuff. And as you know, Dave, I have to get out and about and see a bit of it. So um, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's really nice for us to see uh, to, to see different places that you might not go or think of going. Yeah. Um, the next thing I really like is uh, gone fishing with Mortar and Whitehouse. Yeah, um, that's got this sort of weird cult following that's kind <laughs> of picked up, even though it's a show about fishing, but it's, you know, it's well, kind of... Well, me in. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Bob Mortar and Paul Whitehouse are men of a certain age, I think 60 plus, yes. and they both have heart conditions and they just go fishing and Paul teaches Bob how to fish and they, they talk about their lives and stuff and uh, they talk about heart conditions that affect people all the time. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, they talk about eating healthy and that kind of thing. It's really interesting to see these men who you'd assume were from a generation that were unhealthy and would start seeing problems like this because of lifestyles and stuff, especially famous people. Or, yeah. And it's really good to see. It's a warm, yeah. wholesome program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, like I say, it seems to have picked up quite a following that, but they are funny, those guys. And, so uh, funny. It's yes. really nice to see them doing it. I really like the idea of it. I've never seen an episode but i do like it's out there <laughs> well yeah so episode three of season two was last friday so it's still time to catch up yeah. i think it'll all be on iplayer so yeah it really, will be yeah yeah um so video games as well ultimate alliance 3 came out i think two uh last month now and my wife and i finished it co-opt all the way through it last <laughs> week so yeah, that's a really good game. I'd advise particularly Marvel fans to check it out. There's some mechanics that are a little janky, but if you like comics, I think it's a winner. A little bit in the tick sense that some of it seems dumb, but you kind of shrug and go, eh, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and I really like that about it. So it's worth a, worth a go. Also, personally, I've been playing uh, Persona 5, which is a sort of, I guess you'd call it a JRPG. Okay. It's with some really interesting mechanics and it's very visual. I mean, if you just get like a Google image up and look at some of the typefacing and the, the sort of UI is really interestingly framed, um, the artwork is terrific. So definitely worth a go or even to watch a video of because it's really terrific, really visual game. And you you don't see much of that and i really liked it okay cool i'm never yeah. really into the jrpgs very much yeah but... they're, they're, i think they're very divisive i think you're either in or you're out and i'm very much in and yeah. uh yeah i could understand why you'd be out but uh it's, it's a really fun game and it's really um visually appealing as well cool. uh, which i don't think you see that very often yeah yeah so that's uh that's me then dave how about you what have you been uh, watching well gaming wise i'm still completely obsessed with oxygen not included which is that's more my sort of game which is <laughs> yeah. a, a very much a build game we talked a little bit about about this last week but yes very much a building game it's 2d closest thing i can think of is is probably fallout shelter apart from i was just gonna say yeah um it's way 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 more detailed than fallout shelter it's not like here's a room plonk a room down there's a room <laughs> you've literally got to put the wiring together you've got to build the rooms individually separately you've got to dig everything out individually separately um yeah. you've you've got to build in wiring systems and there's different voltages and stuff so you've got to change one voltage to another voltage nice. uh, you've got to mine your own oil i mean it's incredibly detailed in terms of, of of the detailing you're probably closer to something like prison architect although this is a side view rather than a top-down view so looks wise it's right. different but yeah i was sort of put off initially by the graphical style but it actually works incredibly well for it and it's unbelievably addictive because it's like peeling an onion you know the the more <laughs> you go into it it's there's very surface level stuff of like okay i can build a room i can put beds down i can do this and then you start to realize 
realize there's oh if i get into this area it's a completely different biome and there's totally different stuff i can build with which does completely yeah. different things and let's find you a new analogy that isn't peeling an onion because that doesn't <laughs> set the peeling <laughs> <laughs> yes yes i guess um but uh yeah it's got uh, so many layers to it. it it's just incredible i i really really completely obsessed by that that's been taking up so much of my time uh in terms of t- new tv series though mindhunter that returned for its second season pretty much a straight continuation of, of season one uh which was brilliant this is the show about sort of the formation of the modern behavioral science unit at the fbi yeah. and when they first started to use the idea of going to talk to convicted serial killers to try and catch new serial killers that mm. was the basic premise of it and uh it, it's them forming that new unit and, and following characters around from that the second season really does start off pretty much at the end of season one it carries things on it's david fincher it's beautifully shot it's really really well done um i'm a few episodes into that i was kind of binge watching my way through it episode after episode <laughs> and and uh, i've had to sort of slow down slightly while other things have, have got in the way but uh, really solid i'm very much enjoying and that's that. that's netflix yeah? that's netflix that is yes terrific agents of shield finished its penalty ultimate season as it's now turned out to be uh he's uh, finished that last night really liked the way they end that i i did wonder where they were going to go with it it was getting to the point where they were starting to kill off characters at an alarming rate and you were kind oh, of thinking how are they how are they going <laughs> to come back from this but they did as you know they tend to do uh very inventive way i don't want to spoil anything of mm. bringing certain characters back i'm very interested to see what they're going to do for their final season because next season will be the final season so uh, I very much enjoyed that I like that show a lot and uh, I will be sad to see it go but I very much enjoyed it and uh, the other thing I've been doing is I've started a sort of run through watching the MCU. I started off with Iron Man, so I've, I've watched Good. Iron Man. I'm currently on Iron Man 2. I kind of skipped over Incredible Hulk, which I know <laughs> some people sort of do include, some people don't. But seeing as they completely changed the actor and kind of left that movie to one side, I, I kind sure. of ended up deciding to skip away from that. So, uh, so yeah, I'm watching, uh, I'm watching Iron Man 2 at the moment. But, uh, yeah, still Have stands you, uh... up. Still stands up. I was just going to ask. Still stands up really well, Iron Man 1. Um, You get to see how much that character has developed. You know, it's really Mm. interesting to see Robert Downey Jr. start out with that version of Tony Stark and and how it sort of has changed over the years. So uh, it's it's worth doing. I've just got Endgame because that was released today. So Endgame is now out on Sky if you want to go and order it from Sky. The disc isn't out yet, but the I think that's early September that the disc actually arrives so i'm waiting for the blu-ray to turn up so i can see all the blu-ray extras but the uh digital version is available on sky right now so you can go and watch that i bet it'd be interesting to see those threads come together because i don't know if you've seen far from home dave but there's a link to one of the earlier iron man's in that no i haven't got to it yet I'm well that'll be interesting yeah I'll, and I'll, of course you'll you'll get to see uh scarlett johansson is iron man 2 first appearance is that right i think so yes so that i mean the change in the change in these people over 10 
10 years or so. Yes, 10 um, years. Even what they look like uh, in terms, even as opposed to even how they're acted or or what their personalities as characters change, like just what the actors look like changes so much. Well, yeah. Um, Which I should do that. Maybe if I could carve out the time, I should do that. Yeah, because most of them are available on download and stuff and they're around. So you can pretty much watch them all. It's the suit as well. I mean, you know, the Iron Man suit, yeah. Change, because I mean, if you remember in Iron Man 1, he's basically got this massive rig that puts the suit on him and then by mm. the by the last one he hits his chest and it just appears you know because mm. it's all nanotech so yeah are you excited for Thor 1 dyed his eyebrows or uh, Thor 2 not the good Thor <laughs> yeah Thor 1 I'm quite looking forward to re-watching that I think that could why be why do they fun. dye his eyebrows Dave it makes no sense it looks horrific I don't know I have no idea <laughs> but uh, yes I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to working my way through that so that's going to be kind of going on in the background as well okay. so that's all the stuff we've been up to let's move on to some tv and film news TV and film news kicks off with a couple of cancellations, unfortunately. Uh, first one is Instinct, which is the Alan Cumming procedural fronted series. It was perfectly fine as a procedural. I, it wasn't necessarily that outstanding and that different to some other crime dramas out there, but he was entertaining enough. And, you know, Alan Cumming's very watchable. I thought it worked reasonably well. It's, and it seems to have just been a numbers issue. Its numbers have basically halved on CBS um, oh and, and you know it was dead last of all the CBS summer dramas because it was running as a summer drama so yeah you can't really expect them to keep it around if there's just no audience for it so um, definitely I know there may be a global audience for it but there certainly isn't in the US and that seems to have killed it so that is going you also have Krypton has gone after two seasons as well and the uh, Lobo spin-off which they announced has got unannounced that's uh, now not happening <laughs> either because there'd be no point in doing a spin-off if you've not got the main show either that may not be entirely dead there are some other possibilities of things they could do with that because it's obviously it's made by dc they have dc universe running in the us hbo max which is the new streaming service that's also part of warner that is a possibility as well it may end up on there those seem like the most obvious places for it we don't know whether it's going to get rescued or whether it isn't again it seems to have been a numbers game for sci-fi the problem is sci-fi buys in these shows and the only way it makes money out of them is off the live broadcasts it was exactly Mm, the same thing that happened with the expanse the only way they made money is when it went out live they didn't have the streaming rights for it and it's very similar with krypton they're only allowed the last three or five episodes for Mm. uh, for streaming and then after that it sort of drops off you know so they're allowed initial catch-up stuff but that's about it i think i very rarely with the exception of say a love island i very rarely watch tv live um i can't think of why i would (laughs) you know why you'd watch love island no i can't think of why (laughs) i can give you a list of why i'd watch love island but why i'd watch regular tv in quotes live i know i know what you mean i very very rarely watch anything live so sci-fi really needs to sort itself out and work out a better business model because the one they've got at the moment is not working for them they are starting to commission more of their 
own shows and more in-house stuff. And I think that's maybe the route they're probably going to end up going oh, down. But good. they need to stop buying things from outside because it's just not working for them. This is the second reasonably high-profile show because there's this and The Expanse both dropped because of ratings issues. Not even so much ratings issues, just the fact that those sort of shows. The problem is if you're a sci-fi channel, generally that's going to skew slightly towards a younger audience and the younger audience yeah. is never going to watch things live. So yeah, <laughs> what are you going to do? They've also announced a premiere date for The Crown, the third season of The Crown, which I'm very much looking forward to. Sunday, the 17th of November on Netflix. It's interesting. Netflix started announcing dates which aren't Fridays, which you know, there's a few <laughs> things like dropped out on Wednesdays and like Thursdays. And, uh, and mm. you know, if it's next day because it airs in the US, that's one thing. But all the original stuff used to always come out on the Friday and they've started picking different dates for it, which, you know, is fine. I mean, it doesn't really matter, but I just thought it was interesting. I can see why they dropped The Crown on a Sunday. It's a very kind of Sunday show, something like The yeah. Crown. So uh, 17th of November, the third season of that will be arriving and uh, very much looking forward to that. There was a fabulous trailer that dropped out for 911 season three, not content with shattering Los Angeles last season with a, a massive earthquake, which broke a load of roads and took down buildings and stuff. They've got a tsunami kicking off the third season. Oh, wow. So uh, that's really good. That is one of the best procedurals out there. It's really worth watching. Uh, I, I'm very selective with what procedurals I watch, but uh, that I think is well, well worth watching. It's very well put together. It's a Ryan Murphy show. Really good. So uh, that is worth picking up. But season three, they haven't got a date for that yet, but should arrive in the autumn, I think. There was a couple of other little bits of, of news which have just dropped today. Kevin Smith, the geek director of a whole bunch of different things, who's <laughs> spent most of his time directing uh, DC shows, Laraverse shows at the moment. Yeah. He has been hinting for the past few weeks that he was in a deal that we'll see him work on a big franchise license, but couldn't say what it was. It's now been revealed that that is Masters of the Universe. Oh, nice. It's a limited anime series for Netflix called Masters of the Universe Revelation. So based around He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. A new series focuses on the unresolved story of the 80s classic era, picking up many of the character journeys where they left off decades ago. So it's sort of rounding off the whole sort of, it's a final battle between He-Man and Skeletor they're talking about wow. and they're doing it as an anime series they already do she-ra on netflix yes, so this they do, sort of, yeah this sort of makes sense uh is he-man your your generation still i don't absolutely know absolutely not no more my generation i guy i kind of guess uh, i know what it is though like yes. i get it so uh so yeah it's like, like transformers right he turns into a car right yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah we kind of he t t turns from a kind of weakling print to he-man sure. there's that coming uh no date for that yet i mean it could be next year could be the year after it's animation it takes forever to put together so yeah. uh, we'll have to see when that turns up and uh channel four of just announced today they've ordered a zombie satire it's from uh, Ben Wheatley who has done uh, various different shows directed a couple of episodes of Doctor Who as well it's called Generation Z the log live for it rampageous baby boomers and disaffected teenagers are at each other's throats this time quite literally first they ate your dreams and brighter future now they want to eat you so uh, uh, that's, you know, that's uh, the setup for it zombie satire is pretty fresh right we're not tired of that yet no oh. well this does sound sort of I mean, we've done zombie comedy stuff. You know, you've done the sort of zombie rom-com.
Capcom and that kind of thing. Yeah. But the idea of of kind of the the premise basically is I think there there is a toxic substance which affects the older people and mm. they're kind of coming after the younger generation. That's the basic sort of premise of it, which I think sounds wonderfully silly. Uh, so so that sure. is being made next year. Don't know much more about it than that at the moment. Uh, it's an eight, it's a six episode series, and they're going to be sixty minutes long. Starting to made next year. No casting yet, but uh, yes, that sounds like it could be quite entertaining. Hmm. And uh, over on the Arrowverse, or rather, not on the Arrowverse, uh, Car- <laughs> Karina Law, who played. It was one of the Al Ghuls, Nissa Al Ghul it was. Um, she's joining Hawaii Five-0 as a series regular, apparently. I, I think people just join that show because it's like, well, it's in Hawaii. So why, yeah, wouldn't you, sure. why wouldn't you want to show in Hawaii? Why Good to you? get out and do some filming, sure. Yeah, go and do some filming and, and get to hang out in Hawaii for a bit. So uh, <laughs> she's joining the show as a series regular, uh, plays Quinn Liu, a former staff sergeant in the Army's Criminal Investigation Division who's demoted from insubordination, but crosses paths with the 5-0 task force as part of a case involving war veterans and ends up joining them and finds a new home with the team. So yeah, I mean, Katrina Law is great. I'm very happy for, to see her on there. I don't know whether that means somebody is getting killed off or bumped off the team or whether they're expanding it by one. Mm. I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, so uh, there's no news on somebody leaving. They didn't announce anybody leaving. We'll have to see. But she is going mm. to be joining that show. Moving on to some other bigger news stories. You fan of Obi-Wan Kenobi? Yes, big fan when I was younger. <laughs> Obi-Wan Kenobi is possibly making a return on Disney+. Plus. Mm. Ewan McGregor is apparently in discussions to make a series based around the character which he originally played in The Phantom Menace. We don't know much more about this than that at the moment. Uh, he is in talks with them, apparently, to reprise his role in a series. There has been news floating around for a while that they were going to make an Obi-Wan Kenobi movie Um, Mm. but then after things didn't go quite the way they wanted them to with Solo then all those kind of movies got canned Uh, much like the Mandalorian series kind of spawned out the idea of doing a Boba Fett movie Mm -hmm. this may be where they're deciding to focus their energy is on Disney Plus and it it makes a logical sense so it makes logical sense I think that uh, yeah it's interesting that they're doing it at all what i wonder what what happens you know what what what's the what's well, the plot i wonder um yeah because I mean, obviously, at the end of the films, he moves to Tatooine to watch over yeah. Luke, be raised by his aunt and uncle. So you've got to either keep him there or get him back there somehow if he leaves, right? He's got to end up there. Yeah, and, and he's, not, another. he's not really supposed to leave because he's supposed to be on the planet. I suspect... Sure, he's busy looking after people. After yeah, I, I, you know, he's supposed to be keeping an eye out for Luke, so you can't really have him go too much off-world. But mm. there is a lot of stuff that you can do on Tatooine, I mean, it is this hive of scum and villainy, you know. I mean, it is, <laughs> it, there is a lot of, of interesting characters that are kicking around on that planet. There were a few things which have been covered in the comic books um, with him encountering Garrow, who is a man that taught Yoda the ways of the stone power, which is a sort of Jedi power. Uh, sure. he's, uh, they've had him dealing with bounty hunters, uh, inevitably encountering Drab of the Hutt and the Criminal Empire. Uh, also, which they covered in Star Wars 
Rebels was the final showdown with Darth Maul. Ah, yes. So there are things that they can do and keep him on Tatooine. I mean, it would be a lot of shooting in a desert, I imagine, for him. But mm. There was a, I don't know if it was a flashback scene, but there was like a, it's something of a flashback scene in that in Force Awakens and he was in that, wasn't he? Um, yes. He apparently went in and put a little bit of voice work in for that little right. tiny, like five second flashback scene or whatever it was. I'm surprised he'd still be into it. I mean, I understand why he's into it because of Star Wars. But after, well, the first three randomly being regarded as not very good or people don't like them, right? And then coming well, back to it seems like an interesting I mean maybe he really enjoys it maybe he thinks you know the, the good bits and I, I admit Obi-Wan Kenobi's great but you know. yeah I see I think the idea of going back and playing a slightly older one if they can make the story interesting enough might be worthwhile I mean he gets to go black and play with lightsabers and sure. he's not going to want to do that for a job and and particularly if it's a limited series if, you, if you're talking yeah. about doing a season of it which I think mm. is what they're sort of doing in the same way that they're doing seasons of things for Marvel I can see what might appeal to him to go back and do this and all, yeah interestingly I, I think uh, we watched him in a movie this weekend what do we watch him in uh, Christopher Robin which is about right, like yeah. Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh it's a very good movie um, and he looks you know he looks older um, yeah. certainly older than he did when he did the third Star Wars but I, I'd be interested to see a slightly midpoint between episode three and four and Alec Guinness you know yeah, yeah. What, what what does he go through in that time that makes him so old that he turns into Alec Guinness you know <laughs> It's so yeah. stressful. Yeah. Well, I mean, that. well, that's it. There is a plenty of time before he needs to morph into Alec Guinness. So, you know, yeah. I would love to see this. There's been yeah, a absolutely. lot of fans talking about it and wanting it to happen for a while. Uh, and uh, D23, the Disney Big Expo, is later this month. So if they're going to announce something, that would be a perfect opportunity to do it if they've managed Definitely. to sign him. So uh, we'll, we'll have to see whether they do announce something there. But I would expect some announcements to come out of D23. So we'll, we'll see. That would be a good one to pick up because the only the only Star Wars thing they've announced is The Mandalorian in terms of live action. I mean, there's a, mm. there's a new series of the uh, the Star Wars cartoon, the Clone Wars cartoon. Is They're coming. meant to have, I don't know how confirmed it is, but Ryan Johnson's getting a trilogy and someone else is getting a trilogy, right? So they've got maybe two of those in the works, but I yeah, don't think it's uh, certain, you know? The, that's one of them is definitely certain. I'm not sure what's happening with the Ryan Johnson one, but mm. the Game of Thrones guys. Yes, that's right. One. Much to the annoyance after that final season of Game of Thrones, but <laughs> they seemingly rushed through that so they could go and do Star Wars. That hasn't lent them any goodwill, really. But we'll we'll see what happens because I suspect if they are going to announce something, it will be at D23 later in the month. So we'll we'll find out. Another quite well-known name has been picked up and uh, is being developed by Showtime, this time in the US, Gormagast, which they, the BBC actually did a version of this, I think in something like 2003 or 2013, I can't remember, but the BBC did a version of Gormagast, but they've Showtime have picked up a new adaptation, which is from Toby Whitehouse, Neil Gaiman, and Akiva Goldsman. The original books are written by Melvin Peake. There are, are three of them possibly for those three he he wrote himself uh he was halfway through a th- fourth one when he died there's also like a no 
Silvetta stuff thing but the basic premise of the books are they they're set around the inhabitants of Castle Gormagast which is this sprawling decaying gothic like structure ruled by the noble family grown since time immemorial the main character that sort of threads everything together is Titus Grown he's actually born in the first novel so isn't the focus of the first novel it's a character called Steerpike who was a kitchen boy who sort of rises to power he's the focus of the first novel and then it sort of follows his sort of fall and Titus's rise and then Titus sort of going on exploring the world and not really wanting to be stuck just being the ruler of this uh, this place it's sort of an interesting kind of gothic book series a lot of names in there aren't there a lot of lot of uh, big word names <laughs> yes Gaiman's quite an interesting person to take this on and uh, Gaiman has an overall deal with Amazon but that deal covers his future projects and his adaptations of his work and of course mm. this isn't one of his books so that's why it's ended up at Showtime and not at Amazon uh, I wonder how Amazon feel about that but uh, yeah mm. it's that's why the main person behind it is going to be Toby Whitehouse if you know that name you might recognize it from uh, he was the creator of being human the tv series and he's also written episodes of doctor who and other things akiva goldsman has worked on star trek discovery and uh, dc's titans gaiman of course you know from american gods he's got a sandman series he's very busy right now he's got like yeah, american gods american gods good omens new sandman series coming as well as other things that he's working on for amazon so there's a whole load of stuff that he's working on I mean, I don't know the books particularly, but I think it, it could be uh, could be an interesting one. And given that it's on Showtime, it should appear on Sky Atlantic when it eventually lands, but it's still way too early for a premiere date, so we don't know any kind of premiere or casting or anything for that yet. But uh, mm. yeah, new version of Gormley sure. I think could be quite interesting. Why not? It's been done as radio plays and stuff as well. So, you know, it's, oh, it's really? been very popular. It's got precedent. Yes. Got, as I say, there was a BBC did a TV version and uh, yeah, then there's radio plays and all sorts of other things. So, oh, right. uh, And lastly, NBC are developing a series based on the classic Brat Pat movie, St. Elmo's Fire. No, I haven't. Thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so now this is very much my generation. Um, <laughs> so Thomas Fire is a fabulous, fabulous movie. Are you aware of the term Brat Pack? No. Okay, the Brat Pack was. I've seen. I've seen the Breakfast Club. Is that? Is that? Something? Yes, that's a Brat Pack. It was movie. fine. Is, is that? True. <laughs> harsh. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I, I love St. Elmo's Fire. It's a fabulous movie. Uh, Class is a great film as well. That's one of the uh, Brat Pack films. Brat Pack were basically a group of young actors that appeared together in a number of teen-oriented coming-of-age films oh, in the 80s. Okay. So it was Rob Lowe, Emilio Estevez, Andrew McCarthy, Molly Ringwald, Anthony and Michael Hall, Judd Nelson, Demi Moore, Ali Sheedy. Were, and, and I know there was some a, of those names. A couple of other people as well, but there was this, they were called the Brat Pack after the sort of Frank Sinatra Rat Pack. Yes. Um, and the, these were the Brat Pack and they were sort of all around in the 80s. So there's a whole bunch of, of movies which kind of fall under the Brat Pack kind of movie category and uh, St. Elmo's Fire was one of the most complete of them because not all the same people appeared in all the films but this was one Uh. of this and I think The Breakfast Club were the ones that had the most of them in it together St. Elmo's Fire 
was a film that followed a clique of young recent graduates from Washington, D.C.'s Georgetown University and their adjustment to post-university life and the responsibilities of adulthood. That was the, the basic sort of setup of it. The problem is that one of the charms of that film are those actors and the right. fact that it was a Brat Pack film and it was whole part of that sort of zeitgeistiness of, of those 80s Brat Pack movies. So what you have now is if you do an updated version of that, which is what they're talking of doing, it's from Josh Berman, who made Notorious and Dropped a Diva. You're going to stick with the main same premise of the movie in that it's a clique of close friends struggling with their careers, commitments and responsibilities of adulthood, but set in modern yeah. day. I mean, that doesn't really tell you anything because from that description, it could be friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can only hope. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but it's going going to be a drama and it could be a million and one different dramas from that so they're sort of using the name St Elmo's Fire and maybe some of the characters but I don't know it sort of loses its charm if it's not either set as a retro thing or I I don't know it seems like a weird one for me 80s nostalgia seems like a a thing that people are just about getting annoyed about now you know? <laughs> it's just about becoming unpopular yeah which is a shame because there are more 80s nostalgia things on the way so uh, <laughs> uh, but Sony Pictures Television or the studio behind it they have actually created a couple of versions or tried to create a couple of versions before the most close they got was on ABC in 2009 although it didn't actually make it to air they got mm. as far as I think is doing a pilot so they have tried a few times before it's basically a name I think they're trying to sell because I right yeah I mean it's one of those things that on the face of it you think oh well that's kind of interesting but when you actually look at the substance of it the film was great but that's the film and it's a self-contained movie (laughs) with those characters and those people playing those characters and it has a charm because of that I don't know whether a series moving forwards set in modern day is going to be anything unique so Mm -hmm. I mean it's almost kind of this is us but without a hook you know so <laughs> yeah minus a hook yeah yeah so i i don't know it's still in development it's an nbc so if it doesn't work particularly well they'll can it almost immediately because it's nbc we'll let you know if we hear any more or if there's any casting or i mean if they got an interesting cast together of a sort of new brat yeah. type cast of maybe current stars then maybe it could work but get a, you know. get a kid from stranger things right get, uh, yeah you know. yeah well a bit young at the moment probably one of the older kids yeah maybe you could do that you could get an older kid from Stranger Things and and maybe get Maisie Williams <laughs> yeah yeah well that's it you know if you maybe you could throw in a, some people that have worked together before that might yeah. work if you got all we're making here Dave is like a, a, a young actor Avengers right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes I mean I, I, I think it sort of needs to be a group of actors that know each other to kind of they need to gel well don't yeah, they yeah they need to gel well and it needs to be people that are maybe friends in real life already so I think maybe if you could use that of sort of trying recreating the brat packiness of it mm. then maybe you had to have something but as a standalone thing just using the name I, I don't see how it works but we'll mm. see we'll see what that, we'll what see. happens that's all the news we've got for this week next we have the interview <laughs> 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So the interview this week is with the Umbrella Academy production designer, Mark Worthington. Um, I had quite a long chat with Mark. This is an edited, cut-down version of, <laughs> of the interview I had with him because... I honestly could have sat and talked to him for hours. He was absolutely fascinating. He is Emmy nominated for an Emmy this year for the production design on the Umbrella Academy. He's actually been eight times nominated before for his work on American Horror Story. He worked on Star Trek Discovery. He worked on Udly Betty and a whole load of other things. In the interview, we talk about things like his favorite sets. Have you read the comic book? I read the first, I think just the first volume which yeah. has some of the stuff from the TV show, some of the stuff not. Because that comic book is so stylized, and I, I yes. that's kind of interesting chatting to him about how they sort of take that very stylized comic book and turning it into what we saw on screen, which I thought they did an amazing job with. So yeah, definitely. Uh, talk a bit about that. There's definitely going off on some tangents talking about comic books in general and the state of TV right now. Uh, we also talk a little bit about his work on Star Trek Discovery, which he, he shot the pilot um so that was before they had a big sort of change of of people behind the scenes on that so that was sort of interesting he is a true geek i could talk to him for hours he was fascinating yeah he was absolutely fascinating he loved what he's doing uh and he's also working on a new disney marvel show and uh he wasn't sure whether he could tell me what it is but it's wonder vision so i can tell you (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, I think that's out there already. So, you know, right. the fact that the show is out, so I think we're okay. Here's the interview with Mark Worthington, the production designer for Umbrella Academy. We will see you afterwards with some highlights for next week on TV. It's lovely to have you on and uh, be able to chat with you. The main thing I guess we want to talk about is Umbrella Academy, because that's mm. the thing you're, you're Emmy nominated for, so... Indeed, yes. I absolutely love that show. I was a huge fan of the comic book. And, uh, oh, good. So when it came to them doing it for a show, I was like, how are you going to convert that into a TV show? Because mm. the artwork is so specific for the book. Yes. And then you're the person that gets the job of converting the artwork in the comic book to a TV show. So yep. where do you start with, with a project like that? Well, it's tricky. I, did not, I didn't know the graphic novel at all when I came in and said, so they, they call me, I presume, because of my other work or whatever. Anyway, so I met with Steve Blackman, the showrunner, and he, I mean, I think he understood that the, that there needed to be, if you're converting something like it to live action, which is so whimsical and strange, and I mean, there's so many kind of amazing components that work quite well in graphic novel format, but when you convert to live action, it's a bit of a trick. Yeah. So he went after it in sort of specific ways, emphasizing certain aspects, I think, more of, in a way of character. In other words, we don't have the whole 
kids saving the Eiffel Tower in Paris moment, right? Because in a way, it's so ridiculously extreme and fantastic. You've got, you know, the robot corpse of Eiffel running the thing, all those crazy stuff that they put in, which is, I love. Yeah. But that's a hard thing to try. One, it's very expensive to do, but I don't think that was the primary thing. It was just like, how do you translate that and give it the quality that it really needs? So those, he making those sort of choices of editing things and then emphasizing more. And I think the show does the sort of character relationships, the, the sort of darker side of X-Men, if you will, these kids who are collected by Hargreaves and then trained, but in this very ultimately dysfunctional kind of cold atmosphere because he's really not even a human being, is he? Mm. So I think that the dysfunctional family aspect of it was part of the thing that I think that he focused on, which I think is very smart. Um, so the, you know, the relationships between the siblings is, is really becomes key. Obviously, there are action set pieces and there's crazy fun stuff that plays into it that is uh, it's really quite great. And it picks up on the whimsical aspect of what the comic book is. But I think he picked and chose those things really well. And then visual translation, it's um, one of the decisions that was made early by Steve, partly in consort with me, was the, the comic book or the comic novel. The graphic novel is set in a mansions outside of town, similar to X-Men in a certain way. Yeah. You know, it's a kind of Tudor estate somewhere out on the outskirts of the city, you know, it's sort of in them, it's in that manner, or it's like Wayne Manor, you know, it's sort of, yeah, in that, yeah. which is sort of a classic trope. And he, I think very smartly said, no, let's put it in town. Let's put it in the city in an urban context. Uh, where he's sort of hiding in plain sight. He hasn't he hasn't put the thing out in the middle of the country where it's away from everybody. He's sort of, as I said, hiding in plain sight. So he's bought a big, you know, I mean, it, I mean, the city is vaguely like New York. It's not explicitly New York, um, yeah. but that it is, it, it, you know, we're sort of using New York as a model. It's kind of like an Upper East Side mansion. But in our case, it's embedded in the middle of a tenement block, kind of. Yeah. Almost in an East Village style, which is very... Now, that, you know, see, that choice is very much the comic book, isn't it? I mean, that's not what's in the, the novel, but that's a sort of choice you could see Gabriel and Gerard making. Yeah. Right. So I saw that, you know, to me, it was like intuitively, yeah, that sounds right. I mean, it's different, but it, it, it gets it in an interesting way. And it allowed us some latitude with this kind of beautiful, elaborate interior that, that's very Hargreaves. You know, it's very this sort of fancies himself a kind of Victorian in a way, this sort of, you know, dominant male who who's an adventurer and a Renaissance man and travels and collector, all that kind of stuff, you know, interested in science. So, the, you know, this the mansion really suits that idea very well for him. And then the kids, of course, are consigned to one of the sort of side buildings in the block and they're in this kind of slightly horrible six floor walk up that could yeah. be on you know on second street down in the village those choices were meant to express the sort of our Hargreaves attitude towards the kids it sort of lays the foundations even in the physical space of their eventual the dysfunctionality of their relationships and their resentment and their eventual decision to just leave in their late teens I mean they all basically you know they go through a horrible thing and one of them is killed horribly and they all I mean it's a trauma and they all basically just split up saying that this is, you know, what are we doing here? We're just kids, yeah. which is great. I mean, it's a really interesting story. I mean, it's interesting because you have to hold the tone and the, the intent of the original material, but then you do have to find those ways into expressing all of that intent in a live action way that is this going to make sense and is going to work. Not an easy thing. I mean, I think Steve did a really good job. Yeah. I mean, if you go to um, comic cons and stuff and, and you see a lot of the fans around reaction to the show has been phenomenal. We 
with people that really know the comic books and and you know oh you i think a lot of us understand the fact that it, the comic book is the comic book the tv show has to be the tv mm-hmm. show you know there there mm-hmm. is there is that transition and i think it, it translates so so well um i was at comic con in in birmingham in england and uh mm. we interviewed tom hopper and uh emmy as well who were there mm. emmy, mm-hmm. emmy Rover, mm-hmm. and they it was the first time they'd been to a con since the show had come out <laughs> Oh boy, just they must have been mobbed. Yeah, just totally blown away because they weren't yeah. expecting quite that reaction. And, and <laughs> it was it was just lovely, you know, because they were over the moon. And there's lots of people. Klaus is very popular as a cosplayer. So. Oh, well, he's, yeah. I mean, who wouldn't want to wear the wear that wardrobe and go kind of slinking around? I mean, he's, he's I love that character and I love what he did with it. I mean, the cast is really, really great. Um, Five, of course, is just off the hook. I mean, yeah, a, yeah. What an amazing character and the fun we have with that. And the, one of my favorite sets actually of the show is the little, is the donut shop. Yeah. So small ones that sort of are, it's funny for me. It's like the, the big ones are really fun and they're, they're elaborate and they're great. And, but it's always those little ones, those little jewel boxes in a way that are almost the most satisfying. Cause that scene, and we remade that whole thing. It was an empty, I don't know what it was. It was just an empty standalone store in a, in a sort of strip mall parking lot in Toronto. <laughs> um, actually right across the street from a late Victorian hotel that had been put up apparently for the benefit of Queen Victoria when she made her visits <laughs> really? to the Commonwealth countries, which is fascinating. There it was across the street. It was this kind of weird Romanesque pile with weird sort of like Victorian eclectic details. Very strange. And I guess she stayed there when she was there, interestingly. It's a side note. But anyway, across is this strip mall, crappy little strip mall with this little standalone building. And it was gutted when we found it. It was a great location. We basically completely designed the entire interior signage and everything for the outside. So it was kind of its own thing. But that way, we could have all these great windows that look out of the parking lot and have this interior exterior feel, which was really, I think, wonderful for that. And that scene where he goes to town on his, uh, the ad, you know, the people coming in from the, from yeah. the, it's been too long now that the sort of time the, enforcers come yes. in and try to try to get him. And of course, they end up on the on the worst end of that argument. But yeah, it was fun. Yeah, yeah. It, it's got a, a wonderful sort of 60s, 70s kind of mm. vibe of that which is, is sort of how i feel american like those american kind of diner sort of things should look i think in the rest of the world that's sort of what you imagine diners yeah. look like you know i mean we we pushed it too i mean there's no diner in anywhere that looks exactly no, like sure. that like you know the ceiling tiles which really you know the ceiling the ceiling fixtures to these tiles which play really prominently all the way through those were fully designed by us and they were cast and molded and stuck up there they were a complete but but they but they're definitely riffing on all of the imagery of that time and the kind of design sense of that googie design sensibility, which is weird. And it's, it's sort of inviting and fun and goofy, but it's also kind of strange and can be alienating at the same time. It's, it's a strange design sensibility. It works perfectly for that. Um, and it's also comic, which that scene is, you know, it has this, it's as brutal as it is. It's ultimately, it's a little sort of comic lotsy almost, you know, uh, as there are many of those in our show, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. You've got the diner, you, You've got um, the mansion, which is sort of a mixture of this kind of grandeur. And like you say, the kids' rooms, which are, are these sort of scummier kind of areas. 
Uh, Vanya's apartment was another um, <laughs> one, you, that, which is sort of the polar opposite of the mansion as well. It may be actually more like the kids' areas, I guess. Yeah, it, it leans into that, I think, because she's, although she's left, yeah. you know, she's all gone and she's sort of, she's completely rejected the whole thing and written the incendiary tell-all book and all of that. So she's the outcast, but she doesn't really get that far from it, does she? The space she chooses to be in, partly because of her economic conditions and, you know, her, her employment that i mean she's sort of not on the margin but she's, she's not at all rich obviously no. that's what she afford but it is interesting that she makes a choice that's not dissimilar to where she came from and um although that they, they, we consciously painted that more it's, it, it doesn't necessarily look white but it's all light tones there's sort of a ghostly quality about that set that there's a melancholy that you want to sort of lean into a bit with her just because her character is so really interesting but sad too at the same time as you come to realize what's really going on with her and why she has ended up where she's ended up and this sort of sense that she's never really known who she actually is yeah. Yeah. Which is, again, there are these really, I mean, it's such an interesting mash, mashup of tone in this story. It's both, it's comic in really fun ways. It's very, very poignant in certain ways. You know, it's this kind of interesting family drama. It's got the action. That's the comic novel. That's, yeah. the, that's the graphic novel. I mean, it has all that. So I think it's really been one of the most fun things I've ever worked on, I have to say. <laughs> You've also got uh, Sticky with Vanya, the soundproof cell as well that, that mm-hmm. they put in. How, how is yeah. that to design? Because, I mean, it, it's got the ridiculously huge bits of soundproofing in. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how did you pull that together? Well, that, again, it, it's kind of this idea that what's the nature of the power? I think, you know, you look at the soundproofing thing and you think, oh, it's soundproofing, but it's like they're, you know, we made them super big and chunky as if, it, in a sense, it, it's a visual representation of something that is absorbing. In this case, whatever these powers are that she has. In other words, you know, it's that thing of like, well, how do you, what is the nature of this strange power that none of us have and we don't even know what the physical properties are? How do you manifest this idea of containment for something like that? What does that mean? Mm. And how do you express it so an audience sort of gets like, oh, I get it. This is meant to soak in the, you know, whatever that she's sending out. Obviously, it fails. Yeah. Obviously, Hargreaves completely underestimates what he's dealing with. He may know, but he doesn't understand that it's that. I mean, essentially. And then in that sense, you go, oh, that's interesting. That makes sense. And then you realize how utterly pathetic it is at the same time. And it, and it leans into the sort of extreme nature of the show too that we in some cases we sort of over stylize things in moments like that to make the point even stronger about her powers so that's frankly it's a, it's a sort of classic comic book trope there's nothing wrong with that either you no. know i mean you could see that drawn in a you know in any number of comics including theirs so there's something to that too that you don't want that moment to be prosaic it's a very key moment for her actually it's a moment of realization for her mm. um and also it's a throwback remember she was kept in there yeah uh, early so there's a, it's, it's trauma as well, you know, and, and it's interesting, isn't it? You have this extreme space and there she is in the most traumatic moment in her life. And then mm. she's reliving it. Yeah. And of course, the irony that the, the, the trauma triggers the most sort of elemental part of her powers and allows that to come out. And of course, it just she just knocks the thing down, and walks out <laughs> like, uh oh, <laughs> now what happens? Yeah. And then, of course, she's sort of manipulated to do this other thing. I mean, she's a really interesting character, the sort of hero, anti-hero aspect sort of, resi- you know, resting in one person. 
I mean, yeah, that's sort of a classic comic trope in a way. But I mean, the way he the way they go about it, I mean, there is this sort of, I think, generational shift with those guys that you you notice the difference in how they're handling genre material. Yeah. These are all recognizable integers within a certain equation, but the equation is quite different for them than it would be for, you know, a Stan Lee or, you know, people of a different generation. And it's really sort of gratifying to see this narrative idea continuing and being sort of revivified and gaining energy that way. Because I think some people look at comics and they kind of go, yeah, you know, yeah. Someone told me recently that because uh, I'm on this Marvel thing that someone said to Kevin Feige at one point over who runs Marvel that, you know, well, when's this all going to end? I mean, it's just comics, you know, it's just what is this? When he, and he's like, what are you talking about? You know, so you're telling me that, yeah, when, when are you going to stop making movies about from novels? When's that all going to end? Exactly. Oh, and it's precisely the same thing. Obviously, that idea, that sort of dismissiveness about genre is really dropping away. I mean, in its day, Frankenstein, this story was seen as pulp. You know, it's this James Well movie, whatever. It's like now it's an acknowledged cinema classic. It's one of the classics films of all time. And that, I mean, Bride of Frankenstein's even better, in my opinion. <laughs> Nosferatu, these movies, now people see them as what they are, these great pieces of art. Yeah. So I think in this world where we're seeing these comic, pulpy comic books, are what we see that way, Marvel, DC, all the rest of it. Now we see a second generation beginning to, and a, you know, middle generation. I mean, there's been several generations. I mean, if you want to go back to like the Sandman comic, I don't want to how deep you want to go on this. <laughs> but my point is, is that these are real stories. And I think that they touch very interesting parts of our own human reactions to things in the ways that novel and all stories always have, going back to Homer. Yeah. You know, I know that sounds ponderous, but I, but I think that's true. I mean, narrative has power for us. We're, it's baked into our DNA. And these stories have their place and their time now. And I think I think that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. You're entirely right. There's some quite classic works in the comic book genre, which there are books which I think comic book fans hold up, like things like Dark Knight Returns or Watchmen mm, absolutely. or Beef of Vendetta yeah. or you yes. know, all, all, all these sort of things that have had adaptations now. And you've got new adaptations of Watchmen coming. You've got this. Mm -hmm. I mean, this oh, I did the pilot for that, by the way. Oh, <laughs> did was, you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did. Awesome. So, yeah. I'm very much looking forward to that because that looks extremely yeah. interesting. Um, mm. I mean, even things like there's uh, Raising Dion, which just mm -hmm. got announced today uh, as, yeah. as coming out on Netflix, which is another comic yeah, book adaptation. Right. Uh, you know, I noticed in the latest marketing stuff, they, they've almost toned down the fact that it's a comic book adaptation and are just mm -hmm. selling it as a sci-fi series because essentially that's mm -hmm. what it is. In the same way that you, they've recently announced that Showtime have picked up Gormagast, which is a you know yeah. classic novel series. You, you know, it all kind of comes to saying there was a time when sci-fi was frowned upon and it was thought of as pulp too. Now, of course, it has a lot of pedigree and people see it as very serious fiction, which which of course it isn't always has been, but it takes people a bit a bit of time to kind of work through that. I did the pilot for Star Trek Discovery as well, and that was sort of, of course, Star Trek is absolutely classic sci-fi in the sense that I think sci-fi as a genre is always thematic. It's always about using the abstraction of that idea of, of placing it either in the future or in an alternate reality or something like that to talk about issues that are current for us in a way which you can go further thematically. You wouldn't be able to say the same thing in a sort of realistic drama. You'd be, you know, people would get angry and yeah you know they you know but you can you can get at it a bit more sidelong and something like side and i think that's what's so fun about it and you know potentially subversive so and that's what genre does it can be highly thematic and really beautifully thematic in ways that a lot of other types of narrative cannot yeah i mean that's why all the geeks love it they're smart they read you know why wouldn't you know that's what i mean it is you know what i mean yeah <laughs> yeah i always said if you if you want to get a serious message across bury it in sci-fi because <laughs> totally, totally. 
really. I mean, I think that's absolutely, I mean, Star Trek was addressing the Vietnam War. It was dealing with issues of race in America. It was dealing with all this stuff. And then in the 70s, you start getting that stuff pretty heavily. But I mean, this is 66. Yeah, yeah. You know, and right when it's happening and they're able to kind of pick it up and and, and deal with it. I mean, that's powerful. Going back to Umbrella Academy, uh, one Mm. of the other areas, the commission, I I thought Mm -hmm. was a a fabulous area because it's that Cold War style with tubes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. messaging tubes and stuff. Yeah, that was all baked into the script initially. Steve had that idea of, of, of and we went through various iterations of how that was going to work. And, you know, and budget constraints made us. So we were we were looking at it more in terms of that, that office that Jack Lemon has in the apartment. It's just desks and desks and desks, a sea of desks and then these tubes coming down in. And obviously that was a bit much for the budget. So we came up with a smaller version, but it's still the same idea, which works beautifully. And, and it's fun to see the actual office where all of the messages are being sent out to the assassins in this case. And then these, you know, there'll be a hole, a wall or a tile come out of a piece, you know, the wall, of the bathroom. And there's the message from the yeah. commission. Uh, it's just, it's super fun. That weird kind of like, how's that happening? But yeah, I love the sort of Cold War 50s bureaucratic feel of that, you know, slightly almost Eastern block, although it, 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 it sort of rides that line between the two, I think, in a really fun way. Hmm. Um yeah, those that's that's that was a super fun idea. I think the production design on on that show is is absolutely stunning, and I just thought it came together so well from something which is an incredibly difficult comic book. I when you look at the comic book, as I said, mm. you first pick it up and go, okay, if they're making a TV show of this, how and. <laughs> Uh, and uh, well, just you. the way that you pulled it together, I thought was was fabulous. Um, you mentioned Star Trek Discovery there, which I mm. think we should also slightly touch on. Sure. We, season one, you worked on that, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah really so, the pilot. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Okay, so how was it just getting involved in that? I mean, we were Trek fan beforehand, and. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd watched it as a kid in reruns and and uh, the TOS, the original series, yeah, yeah. you know, which is still my favorite. I think. I mean, with its flaws, it's just it's something so pure about it. Also, a lot of those, a number of those writers are expats from the uh, Twilight Zone. Right. Yeah, yeah. So that explains the thematic ideas and the nature of the stories um, in many respects, and the sort of pure sci-fi sensibility. But. It's a different, I mean, you know, I got a call from my agent said, oh, they're interested in talking about Star Trek. I met with Brian Fuller, the showrunner, who's brilliant. You know, he did Hannibal, he did uh, American Gods, he did Pushing Daisies. He's, yeah. he, he was a writer on DS9. That's where he got his, that's where he got his first writing job yes. in L.A. And I, it was basically like 14 people in his rather small office all sitting around and stuff. And it's, but it was just me and Brian just geeking out. <laughs> Our track, like, what's your favorite episode? And I'm like, what do you mean episode? It's got to be episodes, right? Because, you know, there are different types within it. I mean, it's a yeah. comic episode. So is it Trouble with Tribbles? Is it Mud's Women? You know, I mean, is it that, you know, uh, there, there's, you know, then there's the, you know, the great, the amazing episodes like City on the Edge of Forever written by Harlan Ellison, which is amazing. And then you've got the sort of submarine episode of Balance of Terror. And then you've got the bad episode. <laughs> love in their own way, like Spock's brain, for example. I mean, it was all that stuff. So, you know, it was an hour of that, and it was, and it was, and then it was like, I got to do this job because yeah. his, and then, and then I heard his ideas for where he was taking it, and it just was like, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, and I hope you offer me the job, which they did. So um, that there's a built-in fear. It's a f- now more than fifty or whatever it is, fifty-two, fifty-three year franchise, and it, it's almost unique because it crosses. It's a TV series. There are novels. There's cartoons, comics, movies, it's this monster. And the fan base is incredibly devoted and almost rabid. So you know you're stepping your toe in it no matter what you do. Yeah. So there's a lot of trepidation and you have to kind of just 
just let that go. I mean, you can't sit with this sort of sort of Damocles of your head the whole time and then be creative. So you kind of have to, sadly, you have to ignore a lot of that. And I just, I didn't read blogs. I didn't read any of the stuff about like expectations or anything about the show. I was just like, I just don't want the noise. It just, you can't because it'll just, you know, you'll just freeze up. So, but I, but I will say that I thought that on premiere night, I'd probably have a, you know, a, a crowd of angry fans, you know, <laughs> pitchforks and, and torches outside of my house, which didn't materialize, thankfully, but or maybe I was out of town. I don't remember. But anyway, I mean, that's kind of, that's a once in a lifetime career thing. Mm. I mean, you're stepping in the shoes of other designers, my, you know, like Matt Jeffries, who did the original series sort of goes, oh, it looks sort of cheesy. That design's really sophisticated for its era. It really is. Yeah. And then all the subsequent work done on the TV shows and the, and the, and the movies by other designers, you're just, it's in a, it's a big world with a lot of responsibility, which is both daunting, but just a real privilege and, and a lot of fun to do your own version of that stuff. Again, it was another one of those things that, oh, they're bringing Star Trek back to TV. And almost like with the Umbrella Academy, where you've got this comic book and thinking, okay, well, how's, how's that going to work? When they said they were bringing Star Trek back to TV, you're like, well, is that going to work in a sort of modernized setting? Because it's, mm. got, a, it's got more modern sensibilities and how, again, it's a very fine line to cross, but it seems to have worked really, really well. Yes. I mean, it's always tough, but I mean, Brian's take on it, and I have to be honest, he didn't continue with the show. No, was, no, I know. I and know. You, you know some of the story, okay? We, yeah, I To know, be honest, I we all kind of laughed at the same time, and I don't want to get too much no, into that, no, no, obviously. No, 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 no. But I will say this about, I mean, and it, it wasn't realized, let me put it this way, his vision of it, which I thought in terms of dealing with this sort of classic, the, the onus of Star Trek is hugely thematic. It brings with it the DNA of the show, which is so informed by the Cold War and by a kind of Western rationalist democratic sensibility, and I will say the sort of capitalist sensibility, frankly, on the one side of things, although that's not hit too hard on, on the original series, against a kind of, you know, when you have the adversaries in Star Trek, the Klingons in particular, they're seen as sort of, they're, they're obviously surrogates for the Soviets in yes. the original series. Yeah, yeah. Clear. And so you set up that dichotomy. And as we've seen, I mean, as, as anything, and these nuances existed then, but I think we're more aware of them now, is that as much as an advocate, and I am, of sort of a, a classic Western 18th century rationalism as a, and, and democratic ideals as an idea that, as ideas that work sort of across the board, inherently, that is also at the one and the same time, a kind of cultural imperialism. Right. And I think Ryan was going, ultimately, it would have leaned a little bit more into that. It, what he, he was really interested in remaking the Klingons as something more robust as a species, as opposed to the sometimes like overly like, you know, yeah. like they're big and they're, they're kind of seen as stupid. And frankly, there's a racial component to it. Because if you go back and you look at, yeah, especially, yeah. you get what I'm saying, a lot yeah. of the big guys are African-Americans, actually. Anyway, it's a whole conversation about what that means. But um, and only in only in Star Trek six, do you really see them as nuanced, sophisticated people? But that's the one where the Soviet Union is literally falling apart or has. And that movie comes right after that. And it's a metaphor for that whole process of what do we do with a collapsed autocratic empire? Yeah. What happens? Yeah. But now they're nuanced. They're, they're, they're quoting Shakespeare. They're, you know, drinking fine wines. They're, they're, they're area diet. You know, it's like, what happened? What, you know, and then they go away when you get back into the rest of Star Trek. Well, he wanted to revive that idea that the reason they are a more bellicose species is that they developed that way. They evolved that way. Yeah. And that for us to, to simply say without questioning our own notions of what that means, that they are wrong and that they are stupid. And if we can just educate them and bring them around, they will become democratic and rational and peace loving. Not that we 
are um, <laughs> just like us. And obviously he's, he's riffing on, you know, recent wars and recent wars of adventure and so forth that we have done recently as a nation and sort of using that as, you know, he was in, intersecting with all that. So there was, I think that we have seen a little bit more of that in his attitude towards the Klingons, which I think was really fantastic. I mean, yeah. those ideas to me, and you still see some of that, I think, yeah. in it, which I think is really strong because put aside the politics of it or the, the, the cultural aspects of it, they're better adversaries if they're intelligent and their point of view is something to be respected. Yeah. Um, so as narrative, it's better. Yeah. So you don't want sort of cartoon 2D villains. No, so. you don't, you know, which God knows so many things are these, you're just like, oh, yeah. you want adversaries, you want antagonists who are interesting and formidable and, and equally matched. That's what makes fun stories. Yeah, totally. Um, one of the things that I do when I know I'm talking to somebody is I'll go back through the IMDb and start to look near the bottom to see what some of the early stuff was. Oh, one, God. What are you going to dig up? One film stood out to me, okay. and it's a All film right. yeah, I yeah, absolutely yeah. love. Um, it oh, was right. uh, taking you back to 1993, and the movie oh, was oh. called Freaked. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> you oh, were yeah. set designer on it, so it from Alex I Winter. Was, yeah, I was a draftsman and assistant art director on that. Catherine Hardwick designed it of uh, Twilight fame, by right. the way. She started as a production designer. I was not even a year out of graduate school when I worked on that film, and I had done something in the fall, done a Disney film with Catherine in Pittsburgh. I'd gone to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh and set costume design at the drama program there. And I, and she needed a drafts person and called me up and I came in and did some drafting and some sketching and some stuff and stayed on. It was supposed to be three weeks, it was three months. And then she hired me onto Freaks in LA and I drove out my Subaru cross country and uh, spent, I don't know, four or five months on that film with Alex and a bunch of people in that film. Well, you yeah. know, I mean, yeah, Mr. Yeah. T was in that film. Keanu Reeves. Yes. I, Otis the dog boy, Keanu Reeves in that. I mean, it was astounding when you think of the cast. It was super fun. I mean, what a what a strange little piece that was. So that's interesting you bring that up. Yeah, really fun film to work on. Yeah, built a compound in a Malibu Canyon and did these stage sets at one of the oldest studios in in Los Angeles, this tiny little thing called Now Occidental Studios that was originally founded by Douglas Fairbanks and and Mary Pickford in Silver. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tiny little. It was great. Supposedly haunted. All this really fun <laughs> and this great introduction to Hollywood that way it was it was really fun I had a VHS copy of of that so I've seen like, it so ow. many times um <laughs> So yeah, I, Andy Quaid, yeah, as, yeah, uh, yeah, yes. As, I think it's Ezra, the mad scientist who's converting people, all that yeah, into was, animals. Was, yeah, yeah, animals, um, all kinds of. You see, oh, Elijah, Elijah, it was Elijah. Brooke Shields was in. Oh, Brooke Shields was in. Oh my God, that. she put yeah, she did this interview thing we built, and uh, yeah, we did this. God, who else was in it? It was there were a whole bunch of. It was a really interesting cast. Morgan Fairchild, Bobcat yes. Goldthwait. Uh, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> yeah, Alex. Alex, of course. And, uh, uh, yeah, Keanu uncredited, yeah. actually, in it. Keanu yeah, was he is uncredited. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, but Mr. T was great. He had a bathrobe and these fuzzy pink slippers. And yeah. he would, at lunchtime, the craft service guy would, would bring him literally a plastic bowl full of chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> the guy, it was unbelievable. He'd eat the whole thing. It was like, you know, he, he, was, he was great, actually. Really funny. Fabulous. Um, I could sit and talk to you all day, but I'll, I'll give you the, uh, the last two questions that we ask everybody 
Okay, so they're always the same. Good, good. First one is, what TV shows are you watching at the moment? I mean, the one that uh, my wife said, you know, you got to watch this is um, Fleabag. Yeah. Really? I like sort of dark comedy and I think it is so savage in the best way. I mean, you can't, we just can't stop laughing. I mean, it's it's just astounding. It's really bold and fun. The writing's great. She's amazing. The cast in that is just pitch perfect. It's just really, really fun. And it's nice to see some, I mean, you know, I work on sometimes all these big sort of genres, there's a lot going on, there's the money and all that. And then you see this thing, this little jewel that's made really inexpensively, but really thoughtfully and really carefully. And it's just, that's so satisfying when you see something like that. And I just started kind of going back and I got to watch more of it, Succession, which looks yes. really interesting. And again, I mean, what a brilliant cast and some great writing. And it's just, I mean, it's pulpy as hell, yeah. which is totally fine with me. Love pulp. You're yeah. never going to get me to turn down good pulp. So that's like super fun. And I always watch Stephen Colbert at night because, you know, I have to have some, yeah. he places the current, the current political and social and everything situation in a nice frame. So I yes. you know that's just the, that's just the thing that keeps my blood pressure down. So. <laughs> yes. Makes it slightly more bearable. Um, totally. Yeah. Don't we wish that John Stewart were still on, but yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I'm very much with you on that. I, I do love, uh, I love last week tonight. Oh, he is, is brilliant. I mean, that's, that's like brilliant satiric essay. Yeah. I mean, in, in the classic sense, I mean, if he were writing in the 18th century, it'd be Jonathan Swift. You know, <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the level, really. These days, a lot of these comics, they're working at that kind of almost literary level these days. Yeah. Um, which is brilliant. I love that. Yeah. So the last question, mm. if you had the opportunity to work on any TV show, can be from the past, present, or something mm. future, not one you've already worked on, what show would it be? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I think about it and what pops, pops to mind sort of immediately is the original Star Trek. Yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's so different and the necessities are so different than what the science fiction had done before it. And it's before two. 2001. So the kind of more purpose-driven aspect of that design, which is is imperfectly realized in terms of the detail and the perfection of 2001, but you can see the seeds of it in Star Trek. Yeah. Fascinating. What is that? I mean, you're at this generative moment where you are literally inventing something new. That's the brief. That is an amazing place to be, an intersection to be as a designer, you know, as opposed to picking it up in a tree. That, I mean, to be Matt Jeffries at that point, that would have been incredible, you know, despite the restrictions and so forth of television. I mean, that's one of those moments that are singular. There are only a few of those in the history of any art form, and that's one of them. I mean, look at the things that that series inspired, uh, you know, from from the sort of Motorola flip phone to, I'm convinced I, iPads wouldn't exist if it hadn't been for Star Trek, you know. Totally, even like, like tiny cassette tape, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I referenced 2001, which is hugely influential in a certain way, right? Mm. And it's and it's and it's impeccable. I mean, it's just it's so perfect in terms of its realization for that time period. And Star Trek obviously can't be. It's being done at Desilu Studios and you know in, in Hollywood, and it's just you know you think it's so funny. Uh, Lucille Ball was a champion of that show. Yeah, by the way. yeah, yeah. Because um, because it was Desilu. Yeah, yeah. Totally. And she was what a visionary producer she was. Um, I, yeah. Okay, I think it's amazing. Well, she I've, was incredible, but. Yeah, to be at that moment. And as you point out, even though it doesn't have the perfection of a 2001, its influence is actually stronger 
I think. I think you're right. We called people at JPL when we were doing discovery and other scientists. One of them said specifically, I would not be here and I wouldn't be in science if it weren't for Star Trek. Mm. And it's just kind of one of those really moving moments where you're realizing, holy, it's that influential. Yeah. I mean, it literally changes the direction of people's lives in a positive way. That's really powerful. And that's something I think, and I've done features too, obviously, but there's something about television and now whatever we're calling it, because I don't think it's hard to call it TV anymore, yeah. or what it is, but it's something about serial narrative, broader, bigger stories that can be thematically more complex. They can be, they can be more ubiquitous in people's lives. You know, people take them up as a touchstone and they follow them because they, they last longer. So they have a greater effect. And the, the effect of that on people is profound. Both positively and negatively, obviously, but um, but it is it's such a powerful medium, and it's daunting sometimes to think of the effect you may be having on people, you know, <laughs> consciously or on. So, <laughs> I'm very much with you. I, I think TV's in a in an incredible place at the moment, um, like a platinum age. There's, we had a golden age in the '50s, and now there's this. It's astounding. Yeah, all the all the great writing I think is happening in that space right now. It's yeah. so rich yeah it's amazing yeah long may it continue i hope <laughs> yes fingers crossed keeps um, me employed yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> i shall let you go because i could sit and talk to you all day it's been lovely <laughs> really fun yeah i appreciate that good luck with the emmy i really hope you win because i think it, you totally deserve it it's we'll see fabulous. It's, it's a neat it's a niche show in a way so we'll see what happens but yeah. uh, we're trying so yeah yeah, yeah. so I, I really hope you get it and uh Thank you. hopefully you can come back on when your marvel project is Be done happy and you to can talk about that yeah, properly. i can actually talk about it yeah, yeah. <laughs> <That'd be good. laughs> all righty awesome well have a great day you too and uh, hopefully talk to you soon talk to you soon all right bye bye so that was mark worthington the production designer on the umbrella academy i really really love chatting to him i thought he was fabulous umbrella academy if you haven't watched it what are you doing with your lives go watch uh-huh. it it's on netflix right now it is superb that series it's one of the best comic book adaptations i've seen it's really really worth going to watch so go and check that out and it is returning for a second season as well so we're looking forward to that here's some highlights for next week on tv <laughs> So highlights for next week, we have season one of Brassic, which is a uh, new comedy coming to Sky One on the 22nd of August at 10pm. It's starring and written by Joel Gillum, who you will know from Preacher more than anything else, Uh, but it's his show. Uh, Michelle Keegan and Damian Malloy are also in it. You can't really have failed to see a trailer for it because they're trailering (laughs) it everywhere. They're pushing it quite hard. Uh, It looks very, very funny, but uh, that's 22nd of August. August at 10pm on Sky One, that arrives. 13 Reasons Why is back for a third season. That's on Netflix on the 23rd of August. It's got one more season to go after this. I think they announced a fourth and final season coming after that, which is when all the teenagers graduate high school, which seems like a sensible place to end it. That's back for a new season. Uh, Sedition, which is this mini-series that's inspired by the Jane Austen unfinished novel. That arrives on the 25th of August at 9pm. Although I think it's set in the time period, uh, it's in Regency sort of seaside town, but they've updated some things like the 
soundtrack and they've done some odd interesting things around it so uh, I think yeah, it could be quite an interesting one to watch that uh, 25th of August at 9pm for that that's Sedition uh, Power returns for its sixth and final season that's the 50 Cent exec produced series about a drug lord who runs a nightclub that is back on Netflix on the 26th of August Instinct second and now final season that arrives on Sky Witness for on the 26th of August as well that's at 9pm and The Affair is back for its fifth and final season that is on Sky Atlantic on the 27th of August at 9pm lots of final seasons what a list yeah Yeah. yeah. so it's it's good stuff despite the fact that it's August and like they used to never release anything in August but uh, some good stuff starting so that's everything I think for this week unless you've got anything else you want to mention I suppose you'll be doing some uh, D23 coverage and insomnia coverage this week Dave yes D23 uh, is coming up so we will be doing some coverage on that when that comes out and uh, insomnia which is the coming weekend in Birmingham we will be covering that as well hopefully going to see some uh, great cosplay on the Geek Town Instagram hopefully yes yes hopefully there'll be some cosplay kicking around at insomnia so you should get that as well if you want to find more information throughout the week, you can, of course, go to geektown.co.uk and find the latest day date info. If you want to get in touch with your questions and comments, email us on podcast at geektown.co.uk. Leave a message on the website post. Find us at Geektown on Twitter, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash geektown, on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash geektown, and on Instagram at geektownuk. That is everything. We shall see you next week. Bye. Bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.